So Galatians 3, verses 5 through 14. Um, So as we continue through the third chapter of Galatians, and we're going to be, we kind of started this last week, we're going to be doing it this week, and then we're going to be in Galatians 3 for the next two weeks. Uh, And and what we're going to be doing a lot of talk about theology, okay? And theology, anybody know what theology means? It's the study of God, basically. Um, If you look it up, it'll say the study of God and religious beliefs. But basically, theology as opposed to biology or, or astrology or something like that, it's the study of God. Theo means God. Um, and, and that's what Paul's doing. Paul's talking about theology. He's not talking about, uh, he's not getting very practical. He's kind of stepping back and talking about theology. So when he talks about it, we talk about it. That's, that's why we're doing it. Now, for some people, when you talk a lot about theology, that can kind of be a chore. Um, and in fact, um, you, you, some people even find it boring. Um, now, I, you know, it, I asked this question, how is it that Christians can find Scripture <coughs> boring? Why do you think that some people find theology, like, like we're going to be talking about today, they just find it boring? Why do you think that is? Why is it boring to them? Because they perhaps don't understand it sometimes. Okay, that's, that's very good. They don't understand what, what, what's being talked about. What else? What, what would cause theology to be boring? Quite often it's used as a weapon to control your guessing. Okay, maybe they're maybe they're afraid of it uh, in in some way. They don't understand it. They're afraid of it. I think there's really, you know, a lot of Christians. And by the way, I can say this because I was one of them. A lot of Christians live their life on what I call the basis of spiritual pet pills. In other words, you go through life and you grab that devotion, you grab that scripture when you need it, you you listen to that tape or you hear that song, and it's like these little pet pills. Everybody with me? It just kind of keep you going. I, I was one of those guys for a long time. I, I pulled out scriptures when I needed them. Um, but when I was faced with scriptures that, that required some thought or required reflection, I wasn't interested in that at all that, because it just took too much effort, right? And so uh, I think that's what a lot of Christians do. They, just, they don't want to dig too deep. They just give me the, give me the stuff up top, give me the stuff to kind of keep me going, and give me my little spiritual pet pill from day to day, and I'll be good to go. But the fact is, that's not what we're called to be. Look at a couple of scriptures. For example, Peter tells us in uh, uh, 2 Peter 3.18 that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be ever-growing. It doesn't matter if we're uh, 10 years old or 40 years old or 80 years old. We should never stop growing in the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1.10 that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. We don't just come to a point and say, well, I got everything I need. I can just sit back and, and rest. We should be constantly growing. And then Paul prays this in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Why, Paul? Why do we need that? so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe. So Paul says, I want you to grow in knowledge so that you'll know what your hope is. You'll know what your inheritance is. You'll know how great His power is. And by the way, I just don't think you get that with these little spiritual pet pills. 
I don't think you do. I think it takes daily, monthly, yearly study in the Word of God and you just grow and grow and mature. So I'm, I hope and pray that in this class we won't look at texts like today and say, you know what, they, that's not really very useful to me. Um, I hope that we can see that when we go through texts like this and you go through studies like uh, Galatians chapter 3, that what's happening inside of you is you're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You may not even realize it. But one day you look up and you're like that, that tree right there. You can't be blown down by the winds of false doctrine. False doctrine comes along and you say, wait a minute now, we, we talked about that in Galatians 3. And by the way, it's, it's and we'll see this in a minute, it, this is a very present danger what Galatians is talking about. It, it, Satan is constantly getting, and by the way, Satan is constantly pulling us to rely on our works. And it's easy for him to do, by the way, because the Bible tells us in James, we're tempted by what's already inside of us, right? You're, you're tempted, Satan knows what your nature is. He tempts you with what you already want to do. Your nature is to rely on works. And so he tempts you with what you already want to do, okay? And that's what we have to be very, very careful of. So let's get to our, let's get to our verses. So we saw last week, that the Galatians have been saved by faith, um, but they're beginning to be sucked in by these Judaizers, and they're trying to add works to that faith. And Paul comes in and says, man, you can't do that. You began by faith, and you have to continue by faith. And he says in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And, and obviously the answer to that is no. To, to not rely on the Spirit would nullify the grace of God and nullify the work of Christ. So that's what Paul tells us last week. Now, he needs to back that up with Scripture. That's what I love about Paul. Paul, Paul doesn't just say this and say, hey, I'm the, I'm the apostle, listen to me, it's, it's what I say goes. No, he goes back to Scripture to back up what he says. And that's exactly what he's doing. Remember, he's been talking, he's saying, you were saved by faith and you continue by faith. You don't start relying on works after you get saved. It's still by faith. It's still by grace. He needs to back that up with Scripture. And this is how he's going to do it. Let's look first at verses 5 through 9. He said this, does he, starting in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, by the way, there he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. By the way, that's Genesis 18, 18. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, let's kind of break this down. Now, the premise of this passage is really simple, and it's really straightforward. And it is this, that anybody... Jew or Gentile, man or woman, black or white, Chinese or Hispanic, um, old, young, smart, dumb, it doesn't matter. Anybody can become a child of Abraham and inherit the blessings promised to Abraham if you live by faith. That's the premise of the, of the, of the, of the passage. It's very straightforward. So Protestants and Catholics can become children of Abraham. Hispanics and Chinese, um, black African Muslims... 
anti-Semitic redneck Nazis can become children of Abraham. They have the same uh, opportunity to become children. Everybody can. Everybody has that opportunity. That's the premise of the of the of the uh, of the passage. Now, I can understand if you don't find that too exciting. If if Paul says, "Hey, you can become a child of Abraham," we think, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> well, so. It's not very exciting to 21st century Americans to tell them, hey, you can become a child of Abraham. Now, why would that be? Why, why, would, uh, why would people have trouble getting excited about being told they can become a child of Abraham? Why? Old Testament. It's Old Testament? What does that mean, though? It's Old Testament. Does that mean... Well, it gets right it off because it doesn't really apply. Okay, it doesn't apply. And they don't understand the significance. They don't understand the significance. That's exactly right. So I think there's a couple reasons. One is they have no idea what it means. Right? You say, hey, you can become a child of Abraham. We brush it off because we have no clue what that uh, means. And, by the way, the incredible value of the blessings promised to Abraham's children. The second reason is that, you know, they don't understand how it is a 21st century American who doesn't have a Jewish cell in their body can somehow become become you know be called a child of Abraham. So they just they don't we don't get that, and so that's really what we're going to talk about uh, today. And so I know it sounds strange to us, but being a child of Abraham, by the way, is very close to the heart of the gospel. It's a different way to say it, but it's very close to the heart of the gospel. And and a lot of, a great deal in this passage hangs on what it means to be a child of Abraham. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a child of Abraham. Now, but first we have to ask a question. We have to be like the Bereans. Uh, Paul says, hey, you can be a child of Abraham, Derek. You can be a child of Abraham, Denzel or Jim or Kathy. You know, but that's easy for him to say. But, but it's no good saying that we Gentiles can be sons of Abraham if a Jewish person can go to the Torah and say, no, look at this, that, he, that Paul distorted that. So is, is what Paul's saying biblical first? Is it true that anybody can be a child of Abraham? So let's go back to the Old Testament real quickly. Here is the foundational promise. When it all started, back with Abraham and the Jews, this is the foundational promise that God gave to Abraham. And you find this in Genesis 12 first. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, he hadn't changed his name yet, he said this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 18, 18 it says it a little different way. It says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay? So, so God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you... By the way, Abraham is living off in a foreign... He's, he's just this guy in this foreign country. And God comes to him and says, man, get up, leave your family, leave your everything, leave your country, and go to this place I'm going to show you, and, when, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you... Uh, the father of many nations. I'm going to bless all the nations and families of the earth. I'm going to bless them through you. You'll be a blessing to them. That is the foundational promise to Abraham. Now, so when he, by the, notice that when he, God chose Abraham to be a new nation, 
He made sure that Abraham knew that the people that he that that the Jewish people were going to be created for the world. Okay, that they are to be a blessing to the world. By the way, I've said this before. Several hundred years ago, there was a king, and I don't remember the, the exact quotation now, but he asked one of his guys, uh, one of his main right-hand men, he said, bring me proof that Jesus Christ was real, that God is real. And, and, when he, and, and his answer was the Jews. Go back and look. You, by the way, you ever know, isn't it amazing that here we are 6,000 years later and we're still, the Jews are still a prominent part of, of, of our world? They won't go away. You, they're always right in the forefront. Everybody hates them, right? And here they are. They just will not go away. And Because, by the way, they're always pointing back to God. You can't look at the Jews and get away from God. They're like this constant reminder, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And so it's just amazing. So their mission has always been to be a blessing to serve all nations. Now, that's the foundational promise that all nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. But, that's okay, but what does this have to do with being a son? Does the Old Testament have anything in it that would infer that we could be not just be blessed through Abraham, but that we could become sons of Abraham? Well, I'm glad you asked that. So, Genesis 17, 4 through 5, says this. Behold, this, again, this is God speaking with Abraham. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the, what? father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called Abram but you shall be called Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations so this explains how these nations are going to be blessed through Abraham they're going to be blessed because Abraham will become their what their father okay he will be their father they're going to be become blessed by becoming sons or children of Abraham now what we can see from that is Paul has not distorted the Old Testament when he says that Gentiles can be sons of Abraham. So the first thing we need to see about Abraham's children is they include more than Jews. Everybody with me? So that's obvious there. He says you're going to be the father of many nations. So you're, uh, anybody can be, become a, a child of Abraham. That includes you and me. Now, so that, that begs the question, all right, well, where do I sign up? Right, If I want to be a child of Abraham, tell me, how do I become that child of Abraham? Well, here's the thing about it. The first thing, the second thing to notice, so the first thing we notice is that more than Jews can be children of Abraham. The second thing to notice about being a child of Abraham is that it means being like Abraham. Now, we know this because Jesus himself taught this. You remember in John 8, when we went through this a few months ago, Jesus and the Jews are, are debating one day, and the Jews said to him, now by the way, notice these are Jews. And they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said this to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham was doing. You're doing the works your father, and by the way, he goes on to tell him the father he's talking about is the devil. He said, no, you're not, I mean, Jesus don't hold back. They said, Abraham is our father. He said, no, you're not Abraham's children because if you were, the apple wouldn't fall far from the tree. If you were really Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did, but you're doing works of the devil. Therefore, the devil is your father. Okay, and we said back then, the whole world can be divided into two classes. People that have God as their father, 
people that have Satan as their father. It's, it's really, it's not different phases. You, either God is your father or Satan is your father. It's one or the other. It's this or that. One or the other. And that's what he told, uh, that's what he told the Jews. So he shows us two things in this response. First, that not, they are not Abraham's, first he shows us the Jews are not Abraham's children, even though they're Jews by birth. So being a child of Abraham is not the same as being a direct genetic descendant. And by the way, Paul confirms this in Romans 9, 6 through 7. He says, well, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. Okay, so that's the first. So here's what we've learned so far, right? Is that it's not limited to Jews. It can mean who? Anybody. But at the same time, out of the whole world, out of anybody, you have to be people that are like Abraham. You have to do what Abraham did. Um, is that part of the conflict with Muslims? Because they believe physically they're children of Abraham and yeah. no one else. Well, we'll talk about this. In fact, we'll talk about it a lot next week when we get okay. into it. But that's, okay. yeah. So remember, Abraham has two ch children, right? What are their names? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael comes because Abraham says, well, this is taking too long, okay. right? God, it, it, go back and read those stories. Those stories are amazing, right? God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham believes him. Anybody got any idea how many years go by? 25. 25 years. God is never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Here's the amazing thing about God. God tells Abraham... I want to make you a father of many nations, and his wife is barren, right? Is she not? Okay. He has a son. His son's name is Isaac, and Isaac marries, who is it, Rebecca? Or Re who is it, Rebecca? And Rebecca is, she's barren, <laughs> right? And then they have a son, right? And he marries, well, he marries the good sister and the ugly sister, right? The good sister, the one he loves, is also Rachel, and she is barren. It's crazy. God's like, I'm going to do this, and he just makes it as hard as he can to happen. Because he wanted, if you go back, it's, got to all, it's all about faith. It was never about numbers, about making it easy. It's all, God wants faith. Faith is what he wants from the very beginning. He makes it as hard on himself as he possibly can. Makes it as hard on you sometimes as he possibly can because he wants faith. He doesn't want it to be easy. Never has. He wants faith. And he will bring situations into your life, even with the promises, that will make you have faith. He's done it from the very beginning. He does not change the way he operates. And that's the way he did then. All right, now, let's go on. So the second thing that Jesus showed us about being a child of Abraham means being like Abraham if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. So, by the way, what did Abraham do? Well, that's exactly what Paul tells us in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, Paul immediately infers this. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons or the children of Abraham. Okay? If you want to be a child of Abraham, you have to be like Abraham in that you have faith in God and his promises. That's what makes a child of Abraham. Now, let's go look at this real quickly so we see where we are. 
The first thing we've seen about being a children of Abraham is that anyone can become a child of Abraham. The second thing we saw is that being a child of Abraham involves doing what he did, believing in the promises. The third thing to see about children of Abraham is that they are heirs of the blessing to Abraham and his descendants. Paul will tell us that in verse 29. If you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. So if you and I have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become heirs of the promises to Abraham. We get them. Okay? Everybody with me? All right, now, that begs the question, well, what do I get, right? It's like somebody calls you and says, hey, there's a, a wheel's been read and you get something. Well, the first thing we, and, and be here in two weeks for the reading, whether well, we want to know, the whole two weeks we're wondering, well, what do I get? What do I get? Well, you've just been told that you are, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are an heir of, of, of Abraham. You get something. Well, that, I want to know, well, what do I, what do I get? Okay, so we receive some inheritance is there anything in that inheritance that should interest a 21st century American? Absolutely there is. I'm going to mention two of them. And they're both of those are given to you in order to take away a fear that you have. <clears throat> Let me say that again. I'm going to mention two things you get as a child of Abraham. And both of these things are being given to you in order to take away a fear that you have. Okay? The first one is this. And that is the promise of justification. What does justification mean? Separation. Not separation. Sanctification. What does justification mean? If you are justified, you are what? Sanctified. No. Made right. Say it again, Debbie. Made right. You are made right with God. Justified means you have been made right with God. When God looks at you, all debts are paid. You're, you're good to go. Come on in to my inheritance, come on into my fellowship, come on into my family. Okay? So one of the promises of being a child of Abraham, part of your guaranteed inheritance is the bequest of justification. And the only, and by the way, what fear, well only justification can take away your fear of meeting an infinitely holy God. I tell everybody this, one day you and I have got an appointment. And it's a scary appointment. <laughs> you and I both, all of us, will stand before a holy God. God is holy, and we ain't. And that's a real problem that every human being has. How do you deal with that? Well, this is exactly how being a child of Abraham guarantees that when you stand before God, you'll be made right. That you'll stand before Him as justified. Look what Paul says in verses 8-9. through nine. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I like how the New Living Translation puts this. It says, Paul says, What's more, the Scriptures look forward to this time, this time right now, when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said all nations would be blessed by you. Paul says that when God told Abraham, Abraham, all nations are going to be blessed through you, what he was doing was he was looking forward to thousands of years later when Christ would come and all the, and the Gentiles, non-Jews, would be justified uh, through their faith. That's what he's saying. In other words, God preached the gospel to Abraham thousands of years earlier. 
of what was going to happen. So God told Abraham the good news that Gentiles of all nations and families would be justified through you or through your seed or through your offspring. So, so justification, being made right with God, is part of our inheritance as children. If you're a child of Abraham, you are justified. You are made right with, with God. Which means, by the way, if you want to know what justified means, it means this. In spite of all your sins, God reckons you to be righteous. Okay? If you're a child of Abraham, all the things you've done wrong or ever have done wrong. Please, if you're new to this class, let me make this statement for the 10,000th time. If you are a put your faith in Jesus Christ today, then all the sins you've ever committed are forgiven, and all the sins you ever will commit are forgiven. Please understand that. Don't be a Christian who goes through life thinking, geez, I can't do anything wrong. I got to get, you know, that you're constantly having to get remade right with God. No, go, Hebrews tells us he's perfected once for all. In other words, when he died and you put your faith in him, he forgave all your sins, not just the ones you've committed, but even the ones you will commit. They're all forgiven. They're under the blood. You are considered righteous. Okay? So, again, that's what it means to be justified. And by the way, this letter was written 2,000 years ago. I don't know of any cultural, intellectual, or technological changes over 2,000 years that makes that inheritance any less needed today than it was then. We need to be justified. Therefore, we need to be children of Abraham. That, that in 2,000 years hasn't changed a single thing. We still got the exact same need those people in that church that Paul wrote this letter to have got. So, Paul has laid down this premise that if we are people of faith, we are children of Abraham. And if we're children of Abraham, we inherit the blessings of Abraham, one of which is justification, being made right with God. Now, at this point, the Galatians are probably feeling pretty good about themselves, right? They're thinking, okay, I like what you're saying, Paul. That's us. We're in church. We've got the Spirit. We're children of Abraham. We're blessed. Okay, We, we agree with everything you've said so far. Now, it's at this point where Paul wants to bring home the reality of their situation. He wants them to really look at themselves. And that's what I want us to do this morning is really look at ourselves, to test ourselves, to see are we relying on faith or are we relying on the law? Which one are we relying on? By the way, if they're relying on faith, then they truly are blessed as children of Abraham. But Paul wants them to see the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is this. If you rely on law, if you rely on works, Paul says you're the opposite of blessed. You are what? Cursed. You're cursed. Now, look what he says. Let's read again. Now, by the way, he backs it up with Scripture. That's exactly what he's doing. Look at verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Y'all a little hot? Okay. Um, that's Deuteronomy 27, 26. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2, 4. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18, 5. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23. 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right, that's a lot of stuff to say, a little bit complicated. Let's, um, let's break it down. Now, this is the second time in this letter, in three chapters, this is the second time that he uses the language of being cursed. Remember back in Galatians 1, 7-8, he said this, There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now this is very... By the way, accursed means what? What does cursed mean? What? Damned. Damned, what does that mean? What does it mean? Okay, going to hell, but what does that mean? Look, it's the exact... If you are blessed, what does that mean? If we have the blessings of Abraham, what did I just say? You have, you have the favor of God. You have fellowship with God. You have the inheritance of God. You go to heaven. You're in His family, right? Curse is the exact opposite. You are separated from God. You have no blessings, no inheritance, no fellowship, no family. You're the exa- it's the exact opposite. Remember, God is your father, the devil is your father. You're either blessed or you are cursed. You are in his family or you are separated. It's one or the other. There's not a lot of gray, there's no gray area here. It's black or white. It's one or the other, right? Um, by the way, extremely strong language. To say someone is a curse means they're damned to hell. They're damned to an eternity separated from God. That is extremely strong language for someone to use. Now, here's my question. As parents, when would we use strong language with our children? To discipline them. Huh? To discipline Okay, to discipline them. But, but beyond that, when, would we, when have you ever sat down with your kids and you, why would you use really strong language? Say that again. If they're, if they're in danger. If you see something going on in their life that, you, that really concerns you, you really know... Would you not sit them down and use the strongest language possible to get across to them? Would you not? Isn't that when we do that? Right? We, in a sense, you want to scare them. You want to make them see, look, this is real. This is not something to play around with. You would use, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is using the strongest language possible because he looks at those guys and he sees danger. So, uh, very, very real danger. So he says, look, I'm going I'm to give you the strong, in the strongest way I can say it, this is how dangerous it is. So again, he believed that there was something so dangerous to the churches of Galatia, something so destructive and dishonoring to God that it merited a divine curse. And so, but I want you to notice something. Now, stay with me here. Where is this danger coming from? It's right here in us. Listen, it continually amazes me how we as Christians can get so caught up in homosexuality and prayer in schools and politics and culture and the danger is sitting in the seat right beside you. It's not out there. It's in here. This is where the danger comes. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, oh, guys... Be, be careful of the, of the immorality of the world. Be, there, it'll get, no. 
No, the, he uses the strongest language possible, and the danger was coming from the inside. That's where the danger is. This, by the way, it's where it's always been. Okay? Um, the reason the book of Galatians has such a radical, life-changing message is that it pronounces a curse from God not on atheists, not on agnostics, not on uh, people that believe in pagans and pagan gods and things like that. No, but on professing Christians who try to serve God in a way that nullifies His grace. That's what this letter is all about. These curses are not called on the outside. It's called on people who call Jesus Lord, but they don't rely on Him. They, is everybody with me? Okay, Galatians is, is God's reminder to us that we're in constant danger of falling prey to those same self-assurances. I, I mentioned earlier, Satan is continually at work to convince us to think and feel because we talk like a Christian, right? And because we come to church regularly, and because maybe we pray, and maybe we uh, uh, give our money, that somehow we're under the blessings of God. But don't you understand Galatians is talking about a group of people called Judaizers who did all those things. They didn't commit gross sins. They went to church regularly, probably more regular than us. They kept the law way more regular than we did. They gave their tithes probably way more regularly than we do. They did all those things. And Paul says they're cursed. They're cursed. Those people in the church are cursed. Why? Because they're trying to do it through their own works. They're trying to climb their own ladder of morality. I mean, that's how strong Paul wants us to, to see this. Listen, by the way, when we read this book, it should make you feel uneasy. When you read Galatians, it should make you feel uneasy. It should make you, am I really relying on faith or am I relying on my own self? I mean, it should, it should do that. By the way, it should make us uneasy because the issue are so big. It's the divine blessings of faith and the divine curse of the law. That's how big the issues are. You don't read a book like this and say, well, that was interesting. No, you read a book like this and say, holy cow, man, which am I? Am I doing this thing right? Okay. By the way, again, it's, it's a continental divide, and it's not between those outside the church and those in the church. That's not it at all. It's not between those who call Jesus Lord and those who don't. It's between those on the one hand who call Jesus Lord, who have been crucified with Christ and now live every day relying on Him. And it's between those on the other hand who call Jesus Lord, but they still rely on self. In other words, there are people in the church who they have a lot of religious activity. Okay? And, it, and by the way, you can be very moral and you can even be very intense about your religion. And you can be completely lost and go into hell. There are tons of people that are intense about their religion. And they're going to die and go to hell because they're relying on themselves. It's what I do. I'm a good person. I keep these rules and regulations. I do these things. And Paul says, no, those people are cursed. And all that is is self-discipline and self-reform. That's all it is. It's self-help. Those people are, are cursed. So you got one group who glories in the cross of Christ. 
And you got the other group which extols the power and potential of self and diminishes or nullifies the grace of God. You got one group of church members enjoying the blessings of God. You got another group of church members under divine curse. And it's church people. Okay? I mean, that's why this book is so such a big deal. Because, by the way, we're those church people. So we should look at ourselves and say, okay, which one am I? Which one am I? Therefore, the way to study Galatians is in self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says this. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. You see, I was told for a long time, I wasn't told, my, my parents didn't tell me, I don't remember, but I, I, I got this idea growing up that you didn't doubt your faith. Right? You never ask yourself, am I saved? You walk down an aisle, you, they baptize you, they told you were saved, now just trust it. And Paul doesn't say that at all. Does he? What does he say? Examine. Examine yourself. Test yourself to see. Do you pass the test? Are you in the faith? one or the other. And by the way, Paul will tell us, if you want to rely on the law, you want to make that choice, he says, I'll tell you what you have to do. He'll tell us that here in just a second. So, here's what I want us to understand. God forbid that we take Galatians and pigeonhole it as a letter that was for a church 2,000 years ago. It's for me and you. It's for every Christian that has ever lived. And by the way, the issue is the huge issues between are you under a blessing or are you under a curse? And by the way, if you look at your life and think, well, look at me. Again, I go to church. I give my tithes. I don't commit any gross sins. I've never cheated on my wife. I'm a good person. If that's your basis, you need to be very, very careful. We, every one of us should get up every day and say, Lord, there is nothing good in me. I put it all on you. I put it all on you today and tomorrow and the next day and, and the next day. Now, let's come back to our passage. Galatians uh, 10 through 14, Galatians 3, makes three statements, by the way, which should capture your attention just like you just heard there was a terrorist attack. And if you had just heard there was a terrorist attack in Tallahassee, we'd all be on our phones. And try. This, this is how important this is to us, to our eternal destiny. Verse 10 says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, Verse 13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And verse 14 says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now let's look at those one at a time and apply them. Look at verse 10. We'll walk through this. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here's what Paul says. you got two choices. Faith, put your faith in Christ, or Try to do it on your own. And he says this, if you try to do it on your own, if you choose that, then you have to be absolutely perfect. 
You cannot make one mistake. James put it this way, 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one thing, then you broke all of it. You become guilty of all of it. God doesn't have a way in balance and says, man, you, man, you did pretty good. You kept 86% of my laws throughout your life. Come on in. He doesn't have A, B, C, D, E grading. He doesn't have any of that. He's got pass-fail. Pass-fail. That's, that's, that's his grading system. You either pass or you fail. And to pass, you have to be 100%. You cannot make one single mistake. You make 99.9%, you fail. That's his grading system. By the way, so if you choose, if that's what you want to do, you want to go base it on your works, and you can do that, but you've got to be perfect. By the way, you've already already failed, right? I failed, you failed, we, we've all failed. By the way, watch what Paul says. That's, that's exactly how he continues to reason. Paul says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because the scripture says the righteous shall live by faith. So the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul said it's evident that no one keeps the law perfectly because the Bible tells us the right, if you want to be righteous, you have to live by faith. And of course we know that by evidence. None of us keep it. We've all made mistakes. We've all broken it in more than, than, than one time. So the Old Testament says you can't be perfect through the law, therefore the righteous shall live by faith, not by the law. Now remember, again, these are people in the church. That, By the way, the Muslims aren't trying to live by the law of God. Right? The Buddhists aren't trying to live. These are The people he's talking about are who? People who say they love God. People who say they serve God. People who call Jesus Lord. By the way, these are probably good people. We would look at them and say, he's a good person. They're very moral. They're very religious. But they have not been crucified with Christ and they're not living their lives under the power of the Spirit. They're living their lives under the power of self. Right? See, unknowingly, they have prescribed to the world system. Scooter and I talk about this all the time. Do you understand everything in the world around you is measured and evaluated by performance and productivity? We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? As a child, you're, you're brought up. Everything, you're, you're, you are... Um, what's the word, validated, I guess is the word I'm looking for, by your performance, right? Every child knows this, right? You keep the rules, you get rewarded, right? You break the rules, you get punished. It's all about performance and, and productivity. Students, go to school, you're graded, right? There's a grading system. You're graded on your test performance and how you produce. Employees, you get raises, right? On what? how you perform, how you produce. Even products, if you have a product like a phone, it's either going to pass or fail. It's going to make money or it's going to disappear off the market by how it performs and how it produces. And by the way, I don't think there's any other way to do it in the world. I think that has to be that way in the world. I mean, do you want your kids... What would your, by the way, what would your kids do if you didn't have that system? Nothing. They'd go hog wild. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't they? <laughs> they, they gravitate to the bottom in a hurry. So I don't think there's any other way to do it in the world. But by the way, when those same standards are applied within the context of Christianity, it's appalling. Listen, 
you, you can't read the scripture without understanding that script that, that Christianity is the exact opposite of the world. You know? Jesus says, you think you see, but you're you're blind, right? In order to in order to be found, you gotta understand that you are lost. In order to be really rich, you have to become poor in spirit. Right? I mean, it's this exact opposite thing that's constantly going on. Um, it, it doesn't go by the rules of the world. And if we try to take Christianity and, and apply those same rules to Christianity, it's, it, we're fools. And, it, and it's appalling. Christians should know better because Paul's laid it out here in the Galatian Epistle. Now, Scooter and I, we talk several times a week, and we were talking about this this week, and I'll, I'll pass this on to him. We were talking about this right here. We, we say, we know what to say, but we do the opposite. Let me tell you. Let me ask you this. How many, and I don't raise your hand, but how many of us still evaluate someone's Christianity by the clothes they wear, by their lifestyle, by their entertainment preference? In other words, we look at someone and say, well, if she was a Christian, she wouldn't wear that. We do that, guys. We evaluate someone's spirituality by the outside, by their works. We do it all the time. Scooter was telling me, uh, he was always, uh, if you've known him as long as we have, some of y'all have known him a long time, uh, when he got saved, and he got saved, he got into everything. There was not a church service. He'd go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, he'd find somebody Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I mean, he went to church everywhere. And, and of course, as soon as people see you're uh, eager, what will they do to you? They put you to work, right? So he found himself, man, he was over here, he was at the prison, he was at the jail, he was at promised land, he, he, was, <laughs> he was doing everything. And then a few, several years ago, he realized, man, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not focusing on my family, I'm not, so he backed out. He backed off of some of the things he was doing. Did you know he had people come up to him and say, brothers, are you all right? something wrong with you? Are you where you need to be with the Lord? Because he didn't... What were they doing? See, the sign... It, we, we measure spirituality by how much you're doing in the church. Do, do we not? Let's be honest. Somebody's really... Man, he's a, he, boy, he's really, he's really spiritual because he's going, 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 going. That's got nothing... That's, that's the whole... We're, we're as guilty of it today as Christians have been down to the last 2,000 years. We look and grade somebody's spirituality by how much works they do, how much activity they, they put in. Even in the church, by the way, you look at a church, we, we grade churches by the three Bs, buildings, budgets, and baptisms. Are we building? Do we have more budget? Are we baptizing? Boy, we must be doing something. Really? I mean, it's, again, performance, 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 Right? And, and by the way, it's really hard. Paul said in Corinthians, I worked harder than all of them. Paul said that. Peter, all them, I worked harder than them all. But then Paul turns right around. But it wasn't me. It was God's grace working through me. I mean, there's, there, listen, there's nothing wrong with buildings and budgets and baptisms until you start relying on them as some kind of uh, a, a greater of how well you're doing. 
in your spiritual life. Right? There's nothing wrong with going to, to uh, soup kitchens and working. There's not, nothing wrong with that at all. You, you should be feeding the poor. The question is not, the question is what's your motivation? What, what's, why are you doing those things? Is it so other people will look at you and say, man, what a great guy he is? Is it so God will look at you and say, what a great guy he is? Or is it because the, the Spirit of God is so real in you and you've got so much empathy for other people that you can't help but go do something? And you're so thankful for what God is. I mean, see, there's this completely different thing going on inside. But on the outside, all I can see is what you're doing. So I'm trying to make a conscious effort not to do that, not to, to say, man, that guy's real spiritual and that guy's not. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, we have been, that is a cursed system of works. And that's what Paul says. We've been bought out of that. We've been redeemed. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone is hanged on a tree. God, in his remarkable love, was willing to transfer our curse to his, uh, uh, to his own son. So how does that make us, we've got to hurry, how does that make us children of Abraham? He says this, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The connection between verse 13 and 14 is that Christ in his substitutionary death purchased for us the right to become children of Abraham. If we put our faith in him, we do the works that Abraham did. We believe God and his promises and therefore we are brought into the, the family. Alright, I'm going to have to go by this one. I, wanna, I want to... Uh, I want to give you one more thing. It is no overstatement to say that the most important concern of your life and my life is to make sure you're a child of Abraham. I mean, you belong to Christ, you're a child of Abraham. You're a child of Abraham, you belong to Christ. They go together. They're two peas in a pot. So we have to make sure that we're a child of Abraham. And the only way we do that is to live by faith. Paul said in Galatians 3, 7-9, Know then... It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, um, Paul says, he, wants to, he says to test yourself, right? How do you test yourself? That's a tricky thing. Um, the only, to the test of whether you are a man or woman of faith, and I want to make sure we understand this, is not that you can look back in time and find a place in time where you once made a decision for Jesus Christ. There are literally millions of people walking around. And if you said, are you a Christian? They would say, yes. Tell me why you're a Christian. And they would say, because when I was eight years old, I walked down an aisle or I knelt beside a bed and I prayed a prayer and I gave my life to Jesus. In other words, the reason I'm a Christian is because of something I did five years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. No, no, no. No, that is not the test. The test of whether you are a Christian is whether you live your life now, today. Are you living it by faith? Look at what Paul said in Galatians 2.10. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me lives in me. And the life I what? The life I live now, today. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The test of whether you are a Christian is not what you did 20 years ago or five years ago or two days ago. It's what are you doing today? Are you living by faith this second? 
this minute, this hour, this day. Okay? In the end, I'm going to give you an example real quick. There are only two types of people in the world. There are believers and unbelievers. There are those who live by faith in another, which is Christ, and those who live by faith in themselves. It's one or the other. You're either putting your faith in Christ or you're putting your faith in yourself. You're either living by faith or you're living by the law. The question is, which one are you? Let me give you one thing. Let me close with an illustration. Let's picture heaven as an as a orchestra hall. And the music in this orchestra hall is the glory of God. Okay, And everyone is told that faith is the precondition for entering the hall and enjoying the music. Everybody with me? So let's just kind of use that. So the question is, how do you get in? See, too many people have gotten the notion that trusting Christ is like buying a ticket to the orchestra hall. They think that, okay, years ago I bought this ticket, and I've got this ticket, and I'm going to put this ticket away in my pocket, and when I die, I'm going to, I'm going to get into the orchestra hall, right? But yet their whole life is, is captured by the world. They're not living by faith today. They just got this ticket. They think I bought my ticket. And I'm getting in. By the way, that is not a, a, a biblical view of saving faith. In fact, by the way, that's a delusion. That, that's an absolute delusion that you've got some ticket. The precondition of entering into heaven is not a decision card that you carry in your pocket to ease your conscience while your, remind, while your mind and your life is caught up in the world. And by the way, a lot of people doing exactly that one thing. Faith is a precondition for enjoying the symphony of God's glory, not in the sense of getting a ticket, but in the sense of getting an ear for heaven's music. In other words, if you, you're living by faith, you're not enjoying the things of the world, you're enjoying the things of God. You want to know more about the things of God. You want to live in the things of God. Scriptures like today, all of a sudden, years ago, would have been like, this is the boringest thing I've ever heard. All of a sudden, you're like, man, this is, this is cool. Well, you know, this is neat stuff. Because you've got an ear for God's music. You're living a life that's in step with the gospel, right? Everybody with me? That's, that's what everyday living faith is. Is that you begin to love the music that you know that you're going to live in. One, and then by the time you get to that orchestra hall, you love that music. That, and, and God says, man, come on in. Come on in. This is what you've been waiting for. This is what you've been living for. Like understanding the value of a free concert. What it yeah. will give to you. Yeah. So, any comments, questions, or anything at all?